Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is New York Times bestselling author Janine Roth, an author of This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide to Mind, Body, and Soul. Through a radical tour of the body and the self, Janine Roth focuses on stopping the search to fix ourselves and realizes that on the other side of that never-ending project is the path to peace of mind and the space to reclaim one's power and joy. After years of teaching workshops on weight, food, and money, Roth realized that there was a connection between these issues that held her students captive in their anxiety and discontent. Roth uses revelations from her own life, both the horrific and comic, to explore this connection. Over the past 30 years, she has worked with thousands of people in workshops and retreats and has been seen on the Oprah Winfrey Show, 2020, The Today Show, and many more. Welcome to my show, Janine. Nice to have you here. Mm, Thanks so much. Glad to be there. And so you've had New York Times, people want to hear what you have to say, obviously, not just on the radio, but in your books, New York Times bestselling author. And one more piece that I didn't say, 18 of them at number one. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's, let's talk about what you have to say in this book, This Messy, Magnificent Life. Uh, I guess the question is, some of the things that I just mentioned in the intro, um, there are a lot of books about that, women and their connection to their bodies and their money and how we handle it and make poor choices. So first question, what makes your book or your take on all of this unique? Yes, well... Um, A couple of different things. One is that I struggled with food, weight, my body, and the self-loathing connected to that for almost two decades. I lost and gained over a 1,000 pounds, and I eventually figured out a way through that and out of that and uh, got to my natural weight, lost weight without dieting, but mostly I want to say without the deprivation, shame, fear, punishment, and guilt that so many people feel towards their bodies and towards food. And that led, because the way we eat is also the way we live, meaning our basic beliefs about ourselves, about being alive, about what we deserve to have, about what we don't deserve to have, come out through our relationship with food, actually through our relationship with anything, but in particular, I focused on the relationship with food. I got to and then started working with people about my basic beliefs first, and then eventually when I saw how that worked with other people's basic beliefs like I'm a failure, I'm worthless, um, I don't deserve this, I'll never get enough, um, unlovable, things like that. You keep mentioning people. You've repeated the word people, how people feel, but you do focus on women. And it seems to me that this issue, particularly with food, and it seems to go generation to generation, has to do with women and how they perceive themselves. And as you say, this this relationship with food that that isn't productive, stuffing and starving and thinking that if you're thin, everything will be okay. I mean, I certainly went through that. I, I probably still do. You know, if I weigh... If I weigh my 105, things are good, which is not necessarily true. But if I gain five pounds, then things are all whacked out 
And yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that that's fairly common with women, older women, younger women. It, somehow it just permeates our psyche in terms of our relationship with ourselves and connecting to other people. Yes, it, it, it really does. I, I think that that's pervasive, and it's a way that we as women somehow measure ourselves. It's a metric that we use for self-worth. And that's uh, quite challenging for people when, uh, well, you know, for all of us, when we don't weigh what we think we should weigh in order to be, I mean, you're basically talking about, you know, am I okay? I often say to people, uh, we get on the scale, we look at the scale, and, you know, before we get on the scale, we look down and we say, Am I allowed to have a good day today or not such a good day today? Please tell me. And then the scale pops up with a number, and then we feel like, okay, now I'm allowed to have a good day and feel good about myself and, and or I'm not allowed to have a good day uh, or feel good about myself, depending on what the scale says. Uh, Janine, you said you lost and gained over 1,000 pounds. Uh-huh. Start with your, that's a lot of weight over the years, <laughs> yeah. obviously, yeah. So, Pat, so start from the beginning. How did this evolve in terms of your own self and your own feelings of self-worth? Like I have to be thin, but then you gain weight. And from your own family background, you know, as a social worker, I'm really interested in where it all began for you. Right. I started feeling unhappy, troubled about food and my body uh, very young. I think, um, in part, it developed in relationship between my mother and me. She was a fat kid, or her mother told her she was a fat kid, a chubby kid. She had to go shopping, she always tells me, in the chubby section of Macy's department store. And so she grew up feeling fat, feeling unlovable, feeling not worthy because of her weight. She grew up believing that if she were thin, everything would be okay. And when I started gaining weight, probably by the time I was seven or eight and being what she called chubby, then she started getting concerned that I was going to repeat her life. And I was put on my first diet. So I was on a diet by the time I was 10 or 11 years old. And I remember my brother, who was a naturally thin kid, could eat anything he wanted. He could have it. In those days, it was all about calories. And it was about how many hostess snowballs could you eat, how many Fig Newtons, how many ringdings and yodels and ice cream cones and Mr. Softy this or that and good humor um, creamsicles, and he could eat as many as he wanted, two ice creams a day, every time the good humor came around, good humor guy came around, and I was only allowed to eat one and then none. And so I started developing, I would say, an obsession, really, about food and my body, convinced, as my mother was convinced, that if only I could be thin, then everything would be okay. And that lasted throughout my late 20s to the point where I um, went on every diet possible. In those days, it was Weight Watchers and Atkins and Stillman's. And Atkins and Stillman's were a facsimile of, but not really the same as the ketosis diet or the paleo diet. 
Um, there was a lot of fat on those diets, a lot of protein on those diets, and, and no carbohydrates, basically. So I would. So, Janine, about- I, I want to stop you there because you said you went to. Uh, I, I'm assuming you went through college, then you're in your 20s or mid 20s, and yeah. then it stopped, or you changed, something happened, or you began to realize, what am I doing, or why am I doing this, trying to stuff and starve myself so that I can feel good about myself? Was there a defining moment that you came There was. You know, that, I got yeah. to the point where I, I couldn't stand um, being fat anymore, so I starved myself down to 82 pounds and by eating only 150 calories a day. And then, because, as I say, every diet leads to an equal and opposite binge, that was so difficult to maintain that I binged for a couple of months and I doubled my weight. I gained 80 pounds in two months, and at that point, I was suicidal because I, I, I just didn't want to live like that anymore. And when I was faced with that, with... Um, realizing that I could not keep going. It wasn't worth it to me to live with the amount of self-hatred that I was living with. Uh, I realized, I read a book called Fat is a Feminist Issue. I was actually sitting on the book of the books, floor of the bookstore looking for, you know, ways to end my life. It, there wasn't the Internet. I'm dating myself here. Uh, and I found this book, Fat is a Feminist Issue, by Susie Orbach. And... It was the first time that I realized that perhaps my whole relationship with food, the way I eat, how I ate, when I ate, um, what I ate, had to be a way or was a way for me to get through to myself, was actually sane instead of insane, that I was speaking in a language I didn't understand. I needed to get my attention. And so I gave myself a couple of weeks, a couple more weeks, uh, to stop dieting, to eat what my body wanted, and to see if I could understand more about what I was doing with food. Were you able to do that on your own? Because you write about in the book, you have you, uh, the open secret to permanent weight loss, which I want to hear. Uh, but so <laughs> yes. Everybody assuming... loves that. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> um, I, I was seeing a therapist then. She didn't know about food and weight but she certainly knew about self-loathing. And I went to see her. Uh, I was seeing her. And then I started working on my own with the, uh, with the food obsession. I, I, I figured out a way that I could eat without shaming and depriving myself. It, you know, I wanted only sugar, really. Um, I, you know, I thought, oh, okay, I can just eat sugar and just have little bits of sugar all throughout the day and lose weight. Uh, eventually, I realized my body needs more than just sugar, and I started eating things that other people consider normal food. But I did start losing weight, and I understood that the shame and the deprivation and what I was telling myself was was very harmful, much more harmful than what I was actually eating. And the way I would zing up and down the scales by 10 pounds every couple of weeks. So you got into this kind of, I don't know if the word is organically, you sort of evolved into the good eating habits that I'm assuming you've maintained. Um, I, it's changed many times over the years. I've changed what I've eaten many times over the years. Um, 
But yes, I did get into it by understanding that it was the way that I talked to myself and understanding also that I really needed to develop other ways of feeling good about myself besides the size of my thighs. You know, what I talk about in that chapter in This Messy Magnificent Life, the permanent, the open secret to lasting weight loss was what I did myself, which was I understood that as, uh, and, and this was from a pretty neutral state of mind, um, I understood that I was using my weight to speak for me in a positive way. For instance, I wanted to focus on my writing then. And as long as I was fat, um, I felt like I was unattractive. And so my weight spoke for me. In other words, my weight had a benefit. I, I mean, when I say to people, when they walk into a workshop or a retreat, and I say to them, tell me the benefit of your weight, of your obsession with food. They can't think of it. All they can think of, this is the most horrible thing. I want to get rid of it. I want to cut these pounds off of me. Um, I would give up. I would give anything to wake up then tomorrow. But that's actually not true. When the people who I've worked with have lost weight immediately, believe it or not, it's scary for them. They gain the weight back immediately. Why? Because they've been using their weight as a buffer. For me, my weight was a buffer. I felt so unattractive that men didn't approach me at that weight. And I, I realized I could focus, therefore, on my work and my writing. Um, when I was thinner, I would fling myself at every unavailable man that came along. I didn't exactly have a, a sane or healthy relationship to relationships and to intimacy. I mean, now I've been married for quite a long time, but then it was awful. And so it gave me a chance. I was using my weight to keep men away, to keep myself unavailable, so to speak, because I didn't feel like anybody would find me attractive. And so what I realized was I had the power to say no. I could say, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to go out with you. I need to focus on this instead. And So your so, weight, your weight, I just want to clarify that. So your weight is, it was kind of, as you felt anyway, a safe place. You didn't have to deal with all this stuff, this other stuff. I did. And many women feel that. You know, I, I, I work with a lot of women in my workshops and retreats. And what they feel is, um, and it, it takes a while to get to this, because as I said, immediately, we don't feel like this. We feel like, no, just get it off me. I'll be happy. And we remember times where we were thinner. But many women feel like, well, then men don't pay attention. They don't make comments. Other people don't make comments. People at the office aren't envious of them. They're, you know, they don't have to keep saying to other people, their work colleagues, how they did it, or the other mothers in the play group, how I lost weight, or they don't get envious looks. They're not threatening to anybody. They're not attractive. And in some part of themselves, that feels safe. And so we need to just acknowledge that before anything else can happen. Because if you lose weight and you feel unsafe at that weight, you're going to gain the weight back. 
So can you comment, uh, there was a recent, uh, it's been on the news, I guess, this week or last week, about the millennials and their obesity. And I mean, you, can, you don't really need an article. I, you can look outside but and see this whole group of young people, men and women, who are obese. And then they, I think they were correlating that with some of the high incidences or the high rates of cancer, actually, in younger people, seeing cancers that were usually in elderly people or people over 65. But what is it with the, given what you're talking about in terms of weight, what is it with these millennials who are obese, who continue, who, who seem to, I don't know whether they do the stuffing and the starving or relate to food in the same way that we've been talking about. Um, what, what is happening? Well, um, I think there are men, I can't speak directly to that, but what I do know is that confusion, anxiety, fear, all get translated through the relationship with food. You know, I tell people a lot that the world is on your plate. You want to see what you believe. You want to see what you think about yourself. You want to see what you feel about your place in the world. Look at what's on your plate. Look at how you eat. So I feel like that's an expression of confusion, anxiety, possibly trauma, uh, um, upset, fear, and that there are no good models for, or obviously they don't feel like they have good models, the individual ones, for how to do it differently, to a healthy relationship with food. You know, again, I think that it's important. It's not so much that people need to be thin, but the, the comfort in their bodies. You need to be at ease in your bodies. And the problem I often say, you know, with the relationship with food is that junky food leads to junky thoughts and junky thoughts leads to junk eating junky food. And so you get into a cycle there of not feeling good about yourself and it's, oh, what the hell, I don't feel good about myself. I feel lonely. I feel sad. You know, the, uh, the um, chances to move up in the world seem to be getting less and less. Equality and pay seems to be getting less and less. Uh, and so people feel like, well, I might as well have the only comfort and pleasure that I do have, might as well eat. And so food becomes a source of pleasure, comfort, uh, closeness, believe it or not. Uh, food doesn't talk back. It doesn't go away. It doesn't abuse you. It doesn't it doesn't leave you. It's just right there. It's your friend always. It's cheap. It's available. It, you know, it, it just becomes the thing that you do because you can. And if you don't have any other uh, uh, ways that you find joy or pleasure or delight, food becomes it. Yeah. And not just joy and pleasure or delight, but I would also imagine challenges. I mean, it really keeps you away from being a risk taker or challenging yourself in other areas. You can really isolate yourself because as you're talking, I'm sort of picturing somebody sitting in front of their computer and just stuffing their faces and, and, and feeling safe. Uh, and they don't have to do anything else. And particularly if you can do, a, if you can work at home, I mean, this whole concept of we're able to isolate ourselves more and just connect online. And then you can also just sit there and eat and you don't have to connect with other people necessarily. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, um, so, you know, to, to work with this, 
what um, I've developed is a set of eating guidelines. And one of them, well, there are seven of them. And one of them is uh, to eat without distractions, which means that if you're sitting down eating, that you're not also on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Snapchat, FaceTime, email. You're not all also doing many other things. It's, you know, we have to start. The way to unravel all of this is to just start at the beginning, step by step. First of all, somebody has to want to change. I mean, that's the most important thing. Somebody's got to want to change. What will often happen, even though people will come to a workshop with me, is that they'll say, but what am I going to do instead of eat? I feel lonely. If I stop eating, then what's going to happen to my feelings of being lonely? Uh, You know, I'll just feel lonely. Or else I feel uncomfortable in my body. You know, my knees hurt. They ache. Um, It's hard to get around. So if I just, if I stop eating to distract myself or stuff my feelings down or numb myself, then what's going to happen? And so we have to move through those things. Uh, back to the basics, very, very basics. Okay, how do you eat? What are you choosing to eat? If you're choosing junky food, then you're going to feel spaced out, depressed, lethargic, and terrible about yourself. How do we get to a different place? What, you know, what does your body, not your mind, actually want? Most people know that. They have glimmerings of that. They also know that when they're eating, you know, your mind is like a television set. You don't actually need to be on Facebook or Instagram while you're eating. Your mind has thousands of thoughts, as anybody who's tried to meditate can tell you. It's very difficult, even for three minutes, to be concentrated. And so I ask people to take in the goodness of what they're eating. Now, that might sound corny or sentimental, but food tastes good. That's why people want to eat it. And yet, when you're doing something else, like on uh, on social media while you're eating, you're not actually enjoying the food because you're not letting yourself have it. I, you know, what I say to women a lot is, you don't let yourself have what you already have, so it's very hard to feel like you have enough of it because you're not letting yourself have what's in your mouth now. You're always looking at the next bite or thinking about the hunger to come instead of the bite that's in your mouth. So you're saying stay in the moment with your food, experience it, be aware of what you're eating, don't be distracted, whatever the distraction may be, and really sit there, sit down, and experience the food, not necessarily meditate over it, but that will help you to stay grounded and not stuff the food in. You also said... Because the first thing you said, okay, we're talking about eat without being distracted. But then what you eat, is that the second piece? Be very conscious of what you eat, not eat this well, junk food? Or um, what? What? I, 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 so I'm talking about eating when you're hungry, first of all. Most people mm-hmm. eat because it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner time. Somebody across from them is eating. It looks good. They've just passed by a window or an advertisement pops up on their computer, and suddenly they think, oh, time to eat. I have to go get one of those. So hunger uh, is important. And um, taking in, you know, the distraction part has to do with allowing yourself to have the pleasure or the good taste, 
that food is. And when you're distracted, you don't get to have that. So you never feel like you have enough. And therefore, one of the other guidelines is you don't stop when your body has had enough because you're not paying attention to what enough is. So yes, I'm talking about that. On the emotional level, I'm talking about um, another thing, you know, all the brain scientists these days have talked about neuroplasticity, and they talk about how you shape your brain moment by moment, which basically means shape your experience moment by moment by what you focus on. And so many of us, because this is how the brain is developed, focus on negativity, that's what we had to do. That's what our ancestors had to do. We had to be hypervigilant and alert about noises and, you know, make sure we weren't going to get eaten by animals and things like that. Well, we've adapted to the point where we just keep looking for what's wrong. And because of that, many of us live in a hypervigilant state, anxious, fearful. I mean, there are, of course, many other reasons why we do this, but on a moment-to-moment level, What I suggest and what I do myself, I do this every morning, I do it a couple of times during the day, is to focus on what's not wrong. I have a chapter in this Messy Magnificent Life called What's Not Wrong? Because in any moment, there's so much more that's not wrong than there is wrong. And we don't realize that. And because of that, our nervous systems never get back to zero, never feel relaxed, especially now in this political environment where many of us feel in a constant state of anxiety, a trauma. We never get down to focusing on what's not wrong, what's good. And when you take in the good, and again, I find this in a group of people, I'll, have, I'll divide people in twos, and I'll, I'll have them ask each other, what's not wrong right now? And suddenly, they feel like their mood shifts. They feel and I want to stop on that one, because that's a really sort of good note to stop on. I mean, we have like two <laughs> minutes left, good. and people are going to have to read the book to uh, obviously find out what more we can do or how to do it, how to... I guess the secret to permanent weight loss. I'll bring that up again. But the title of, of Janine's book is This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide to Mind, Body, and Soul. And I assume you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. And where's, give us a website that we can go to, Janine, where we can find out obviously more about the book and your workshops and what do you do? Yeah. Or how do you, and it's with a G. Uh, like George, G-E-N-E-E-N, Roth, R-O-T-H dot com. And, you know, I have workshops and retreats coming up. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Mm -hmm. Lots of good information. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Frida Farrell, human rights activist and actress and author. Uh, our topic today is human trafficking. And uh, after remaining silent about her own real-life horrific experience for 14 years, Frida Farrell transformed her pain into art, not only for personal catharsis, but also as a powerful statement against gendered violence. Apartment 407 tells the story of Isabel, played by Frida, a young mother whose life has changed when a charming stranger invites her to take part in a photo shoot. Instead, Isabel is kidnapped and sold into the sex trade. The result is a harrowing tale of indomitable tenacity that has received 18 film festival nominations. Born and raised in Malmo, Sweden, Farrell left at an early age to pursue a modeling career and now owns a film company, Development Hell Pictures. She uses her platform to fight international and online human trafficking and has been featured in Cosmopolitan, Elle, and The Times, and many more. Welcome to the show, Frida. Thank you very much for having me, Catherine. You're from, I just have to say it stood out, you're from Malmo, and I just want to say, beautiful city. I went to a wedding there two years ago. Prior to that, I actually hadn't heard of it, but now I'm pretty familiar with your town. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's a small town. I'm surprised yeah. you went, but um, yes. I'm glad you did. Yes, I'm glad I did too. But, okay, this topic is quite far from Malmo, Sweden. Um, Apartment 47, uh, which is your film, um, which is also, as I said, 18 film festival nominations. Tell us about the film um, and your decision to make the film. And uh, obviously the, the topic is human rights and uh, human trafficking. So let's go from the start when this all became uh, a reality for you. Yes, we were sitting down and we were thinking about making a film, any film, because we had made a couple of short films and we made, and we won a bunch of uh, festivals. And we thought, well, let's make a feature film. And we were quite innocent at the time, thinking, oh, we can do this, this is great. And then um, we talked about what kind of film to make, and then the idea of making a film of my life came up. And I was like, no, uh, no, 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 no. At the time, there was only one person who knew, and there was the other guy who was part of the company. He knew. And I was like, mm, let's not make a film about my life, because nobody else in the world knows. So I don't want anyone else to know this. Um but he was like, you know what, I think it could be really strong if it did this because you could help other women. And that resonated with me so strongly. I thought, you know, 
this could, if this can help other women, I'm happy to tell my story. But for no other reason was I happy to tell my story. I tell you that. But yeah, we talked about it a couple of weeks, and then we um, sat down with a writer and hired him, and obviously told him the story. I recorded my story on tape for him. He went away and wrote first draft, and then I worked with him back and forth on these drafts to make a film. It took about two years to write the film with this writer, an English guy, amazing writer. And then we had a film, and then we went after, you know, funding, and we everything just came through for some reason. The angels were with us, and um, we made this film. It took years to make the film. It took six years in total to make the film, actually. Um, what do you think, I mean, as you're... As you're describing the film, and you said, you know, the angels helped you, but besides the angels, it seems to me that when you, it's your story, there's two things. I would, did you feel really vulnerable in the beginning? One other person knew your story, but nobody else knew it, and you've been living with this for how long in terms of before you were able to reveal your story? Yeah. yeah. I was extremely uncomfortable with this, extremely uncomfortable, and I mean, that's part of why it took so long as well, because I was going back and forth, back and forth. I don't know if I want to do it. Maybe I, I shouldn't play the role. I don't want anyone to know it's me, really. I can just hide behind the film. Um, we should, let's hire somebody. Or then they're like, let's, why don't you play it? No, okay, maybe I'll play it. Yes, I'll play it. No, I won't. There was a lot of back and forth, a lot of hesitation between me and me. So I was the one delaying the film over and over and over because of my hesitation, because of my insecurity, because of my shame that I still felt from all of this, which is what you feel when you've gone through these things. You feel shame, which is why you don't talk about it. So let's talk about it. What happened to you? What what happened to you before we get even more into the film? But what did happen to you? How did it happen to you? This and and obviously feeling shameful about, yeah. So I was, Living in London at the time, I was a student. I had just finished drama school in London. I was uh, walking home one night, one evening, early evening, five, six o'clock, in Oxford Circus. I don't know if you're familiar with London or our listeners are, but it's it's a big hub in London, and there's about a million people walking through. It's right in the center of London. And I thought, you know, it's a nice evening. It's like summer night. I'm going to walk home. And I started walking home, and then as I walk home, there was a guy approaching me, very distinguished, nice-looking guy in a suit, about 50, perhaps. Hi, I'm a photographer. I just saw you walking uh, across the street, and I just figured you look exactly what we're looking for. We're having a casting. We're, we're doing this commercial. And I was like, oh, and I had been modeling when I was younger. Not anymore. So it wasn't like, this is completely out of the blue. He's crazy. you know. And he goes, here's my card. If you're interested at all, give me a call. Check out my website. You know, Otherwise, it was nice meeting you. And he took off. And I was like, okay. So no red flags, not not inappropriate, not dragging me into an apartment, not saying, you know, wow, come into this car, nothing. I took his card, I went home, I checked him out, looked legit to me, you know, any photographer's website, I called him and said, yeah, I'd love to go, why not? It's a, probably a lot of money, I thought, so I went along to the casting, it was completely fine, in an apartment, there was a photo shoot, there was an assistant, there was fruit, tea, coffee, just like any photo shoot you'd think a couple of pictures he said great I'll let you know if the clients like you I'll give you a call thank you so much for coming nice to meet you bye bye I left and then he calls him back the next day and he said yeah you know the client loved you would you like to do the shoot I said yeah I'd love to at this point he told me that it was quite a lot of money and I was like 
a student thinking, yeah, this will pay my rent for six months. Yes, yes, of course. So um, I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. So I went along to the shoot, same apartment. Now, this is an apartment in Harley Street. Again, if you're not familiar with London, Harley Street is equivalent of kind of just behind Rodeo Street, like Rodeo in Beverly Hills. So it's very, very posh. Very nice people live there. A lot of money. You wouldn't think it's going to be something bad. Doctors. So I went along the same place. I knocked on the door. I opened the door. This time I went in and I slammed the door behind me and locked it with a key. Put the key in his pocket and turned around. And I just looked at him. And I was like, it took about, it felt like 10 minutes, but it probably was, would have been three seconds for my brain to realize what's happening and I couldn't I couldn't commute in my head and I was like wait he locked the door with a key how am I supposed to get out and then he pulls out a hunting knife and I was like what um and then you just freeze you I literally froze I didn't know what to do I didn't want to throw a massive scene because I thought he's going to use that knife on me and at this point I didn't know he was just a crazy person who's just going to I don't know rape me kill me cut me in pieces, eat me, who knows? Like, you could just be completely cuckoo. I just stood there. All I could think about was I need to use the restroom, <laughs> which is also like, what? But I need to get out of the situation. So he said, yeah, it's right behind you. Leave your bag on the floor. And I was like, okay. I left my bag and my phone and everything on the floor, and I went to the bathroom, trying to think of an escape route. So I saw a little window, size of a laptop, and I thought I could maybe press myself through the window. And I climbed up onto the toilet and I looked through the window, but there's a five-story drop onto a concrete backyard. And I thought, oh, God, there's not going to be much left of me if I jump down there. And I started thinking, what's worse, the knife or the, or the drop onto this, the, the stones? And I thought, oh. And they knocked on the door and I quickly got out and he gave me a bag of underwear, which looked like used underwear. He said, where are these? And all I could think of saying was this wasn't part of the deal. Like, there was supposed to be, a, like, a nice commercial, you know, <laughs> not for underwear. And he goes, wear these. I'm like, okay. And he's standing there holding a massive knife. So I put on the underwear, and I said, I have a stomach ache. And he gives me a glass of milk. And I remember looking at him thinking, this is obviously spiked. I mean, I'm not stupid. It's obviously something in the milk. And then I thought, I might just drink the milk and maybe it's better if I don't remember what's happened. Maybe it's just better if I don't remember the knife or what he does. So I drank the milk and fair enough, I at some point collapsed in the next probably 15 minutes. I don't know. He was taking more photographs with me in underwear and then at some point in the living room, I collapsed and then I woke up in a different apartment. And we have all that in the film as well. I mean, it's terrifying. I mean, it's interesting how he, and I'm using the word groomed you in the beginning. I mean, it's, you know, because we picture the scene that you describe him with a knife and you going into the apartment um, happening sort of, you know, some ugly guy grabs you off the street and it's exactly the opposite. I mean, you're in this Harley, you know, upscale apartment or neighborhood um, and he knew just how to do it. Was there a whole 
well, there is a whole group or behind him, right? There was nobody else in the apartment at the time, I assume, or you didn't, you weren't aware no. of it. No, there was not. Yeah, I don't think there was because it wasn't a huge apartment. So, no, I don't think. I think he was alone when I came around for the actual shoot, for the actual job. I think he was alone, but at that point, he was so. You know, I was. I wasn't going to fight. I wasn't going to do it because I was so prepared. You know, he had me already. But he was so smooth. In hindsight, I'm thinking, that I'm not the first. I, sh- I, mean, I know I'm not the first. There's no way. He's, he's got the system down. I can't How do you think he found you? I, I, the question, like he saw you supposedly by accident on the street, which obviously wasn't. Exactly. Yeah, so, no. yeah. How did he get to you? I think he sat in the cafe because I was passing by like a sort of cafe as I walk home. And he, I think he just sat in that cafe and looked for like, you know, girls that could potentially work for his, what he was, what he needed. And to be honest, I don't even know if he was looking for particularly pretty girls. I, I think he was looking for girls walking alone. So I'm really honest. If he's he, looking for like, kind-looking, maybe, girls who are approachable walking alone. Vulnerable? Girls who are vulnerable? Who would not say to him, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, or or like at that point, maybe any girl walking alone because he could just give his card out and hope for the best. And then anyone who called him back and come to the studio for this pretend photo shoot where he had a female assistant, whom, of course, I, I have, you know, thinking, where did he get this from? We made it up in our film because I never found this information else. I mean, we made it up in film, but he hired her from Craigslist. But, you know, where would he get a female assistant to help out? And maybe there are female assistants to help out. God knows. But she was there helping out. Did she know about it? Was she completely unaware? Was she just helping out for the day? Was she hired for I mean, we don't know these things. Yeah. And, unless she got paid enough so that uh, it was worth her while for whatever reason. Uh, yeah. But she could have been completely innocent and not known, just been like, I need help uh, on a photo shoot today. Can you help? You know, it could have been like, okay, sure, some cash. And then she could have not known anything. I don't want to, you know, pin something on someone that she could have been so innocent. So, but yeah, that's how, that's how it went down. And then in that apartment, when I woke up, that's when everything... So he took me... I only found out this in hindsight. He took me to um, the downstairs apartment in the same building. So in London, you can live below the ground, so to speak, where there's a couple of... You're like literally maybe 10 inches above the ground, and there's a flat and there's bars on the window. So you don't have much access to to sunlight really you just have a little bit of light you sort of just below the pavement it sounds crazy but I think this is storage rooms in the old days but they've turned them into apartments now because there's so many people in London so you can live there and they have nice apartments there too now they're nice but um, some people live there and there is bars in the window because they used to be there so he was that's how he, he took me down there I didn't know that at the time because I couldn't see out and he had stripped that apartment down completely because, you know, one of the first things you do, I came around and I was like, where am I? You start looking around and there's nothing in that apartment I could use as a weapon. I, he even took out the, the toilet seat. 
anything that could become loose. There was a kitchen in there. He took out all the drawers, all the um, the um, doors in the kitchen, like all the little cupboards. Everything was taken out. I couldn't rip anything off, and like you, know, you start, you start becoming really paranoid. Obviously, and you think you want to stand behind a, a door frame and like hide and hit him over the head with something. But there's nothing to hit him over the head with. So he was very, very prepared. Were you, and what was going through your mind, like, as you say, I mean, you're looking around to see if you can find something that you could either escape or hit him over the head with, not there. Were you terrified, or are you sitting there thinking, how is this happening, or or what was, like, the emotional stuff that was happening to you? There, There was a lot happening in there physically as well, so the emotional stuff... There wasn't much time for the emotional stuff there. That sort of came afterwards. There was a few moments of, it was more almost almost like animalistic of, I need to get out, like pure survival. I need to get out. How am I going to get out? You like search. I even tried to rip off a door frame of an actual door in my own hands, and it didn't work. I'm just like, I wish I was just stronger. I wish I was, a, at this point, I was like, I wish I was a guy. I could just, like, rip it off like they do in films, but you can't. You literally cannot rip off a door frame. So I, but there was, you know, there was guys coming and going. There was a lot of drugs. He gave me this liquid, this white liquidy milk that he spiked. He gave me that a lot, and there was a lot of, you know, guys of physical abuse uh, over those three days that I was down there. And... Sometimes I think, well, maybe that was a good thing that I was given some drugs because I don't have all the memories of it. I have a lot of gaps, which is almost good to have because I'm thinking I don't want to remember everything. I remember a fair amount that I don't want to remember either, but um, a lot of guys, um, and all kinds of guys, and it's not like race-specific guys. It's any kind of guy. And not age specific either. So, you know, it's. So, what were the ages from teenagers to old men or and everything in between? Uh, no, not teenagers. No, yeah. I would say more, more like maybe late 20s to, you know, late 50s. So, it's, it's quite spread. It's still a good 30 year range there. Um, and then. And then you were in there um, for th- three days. And then what happened yeah. after the three days? How did, yeah. Um, so I, I was pure, I was so lucky. I mean, he was, I don't know what he would have done with me afterwards. I don't know if he would have shipped me out of the country or or just got rid of me. Because obviously I was trying to talk him around, you know. Every time he was in there, I was pleading and talking and please, please, please. And I have a family like my mom and, you know, she's going to, come and you know they're going to look for me and all these kinds of things that you try to humanize yourself and say you know I'm a human being please you can't just do this and people are going to come looking and you try everything um, he, he nothing got to him literally nothing it was like talking to a wall he did, barely answered me and last day which became my last day by, by, by pure luck but he came running downstairs 
Um, he opened the door, like he ripped open the door and ran inside. I didn't know at the time even where I was, but like he was like, he ran inside. Oh, hurry, 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 put this on, put this on quickly. He was really, really stressed. I mean, he was always a little bit stressed, I guess, but not like this. He threw something on me. Get this ready. Go get your rest ready. Are you washed? And I was like, oh, um, you know, I'm trying to like come around from like, you know, just drugs and all kinds of, I'm, I'm sitting on the bed. I'm going, oh, okay, yeah. And then he, he runs out and just slams the door and then runs like he, and he, what I didn't hear was the lock because every time he goes out and slams the door and locks it. And I was like, there was no lock. He didn't, there was no click, like, and I thought, oh my God, either, either he's playing me and he's going to stand outside the door with a knife and that's it. He's just going to see if I'm, you know, if I'm, you know, doing what he wants me to do or if I'm going to be one of the runners and he's just going to catch me and kill me. But I have to investigate. I have to check because if he isn't, and this is my... You know, I'm too curious. I'm too survival at this point. I have to find out. So I sneaked up to the door. And then I put my ear against the door and I listened. And I could hear footsteps. I listened for a couple of seconds and they went further and further away. And I thought, maybe, maybe he just forgot. It's impossible in my head. It's impossible he just forgot to lock. And I thought, maybe someone really is coming in like 30 seconds. And he's just thinking, maybe he's just somewhere outside, you know, like all kinds of things go through your head. But I thought, I have to try, I have to try the handle. So I just try the handle. I open the door a little bit, like an inch, and I see a staircase straight away. And I didn't know exactly where I was. I was like, what? A staircase. I open a little bit more, and I'm waiting for like the doors to rip open and like someone go, ah, nothing. I open it more and more and more and nothing, and there's silence. And he had put the clothes that I arrived in, they were laying right there in the hallway on a chair, just like thrown. And I thought, I should just take my clothes just in case I get out. I grabbed my clothes, I held them against my chest and I thought, okay, maybe. I got outside and I thought, now it's, now it's, I can't go back now. So I'm sneaking up the staircase by the side of the stairs just in case they would creak. And I get up to the top, and now I know where I am because I'm at the same entrance that I came in the first day I came in. And I just thought, there's no one here. Oh, my God. So I just bolted through. There's a glass revolving door. I bolted through the glass revolving door out onto the street and just turned right and started running. And I turned right around the corner just to get away from the front of the house and started running. And I just, I got into, like, a little, um, like, someone else's door, like a... Um, someone else's entry of another house and I put on my own clothes and I started running and I just ran and ran and ran and ran. I don't know how long, I mean, it could have been 10 blocks or something but I just ran and ran and ran and finally I got a taxi to a friend of mine. That's but I really that, consider myself lucky. Very lucky, like you said. I mean, you could have been killed. You could yeah. have, who knows what could have happened yeah. but... Obviously, yeah. it sounds like something was happening to him, and he had to get out of there quickly. And so you had your opportunity. I guess you have to take your opportunity. Since we only have a few minutes yeah. left, I mean, that's quite a story, obviously. And you can watch the, yeah. the trailer online. Um, but 
because you're an activist now and are a human yeah. rights activist, how do you think that this film is going to affect or how do you want it to affect other women? I mean, that there are different kinds of stories, but that's that your story is unique, obviously. But how do you want this to affect women? What do you want them to learn from it? I want them to, I'm already seeing an effect, which is beautiful. I want pe- women to feel that, don't feel shamed. I know you feel ashamed by what happened to you, anything that happened to you in a in sense of abuse or violence. And, and I know it's shameful. And I want you to feel that it's okay to talk about it. It's the only way to heal is to talk about it and process it and get over it. Because I was silent for 14 years and it's not the right way. I don't suggest that way. It's not good. So talk about it and get over the shame and the fear of it. And then you're going to heal. And nothing's ever going to become normal again, but you're going to have a good life again. You know, that's my, my, I want this film to do that. And I'm already seeing hundreds of messages on Facebook and emails and private messages coming to me from women who've seen the film and they're coming out and telling their stories to me, which is exactly what I want this film to do. So that's beautiful. I'm really, really Frida, happy. where can we see the film? It's on Amazon right now. Amazon Prime. You can see it. It's on YouTube. It's on um, iTunes. It's on a lot of platforms in North America and Canada at the moment. Uh, on Direct TV. Like it's on a lot of. Um, I should have. I should let my platforms will be up on my website. My website is Frida Farrell. There's also a website on apartment407.com. So it's apartment407.com or FridaFarrell.com. Um, you can check out the. The trailer is on YouTube, just Apartment 407. Um, so, yeah, you can see it. It's, it's available everywhere in North America and Canada right now. And That's it's great. Just signed the well, once you get here. online, it's available everywhere, everywhere, right? It's global. It's it's quite yeah. a story. And thanks for sharing the sh- story today just uh, with us. Um, thank you so much. Thank you and so you, much, yeah. Catherine, for having me. Thank I'm you. I'm glad. Good. I really thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 